Welcome to the second season of Reset the Table. Russia's war in Ukraine affects agricultural markets and threatens food security for millions around the world. The UN Food System Summit is behind us, and COP27 and the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health are upon us. Join us as we examine solutions to food insecurity challenges around the world and right here at home. In this episode, I discuss a proposed White House conference on food security. After our recording, President Biden announced a White House conference on hunger, nutrition, and health to be held in September 2022, the first such conference in the United States in over 50 years. I'm Caitlin Welsh, director of the CSIS Global Food Security Program. My guest today is Tom Arnold, the Irish government's special envoy for food systems. This is Tom's current title, and he's held many in his long career coordinator of the Scaling Up Nutrition or Sun Movement, chief executive of Concern Worldwide, chief economist in Ireland's Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, and many, many others. Tom is based in Ireland, but joins us today in CSIS's studios. Tom, welcome. Thank you very much, Casey. Pleasure to have you. I'd like to take this occasion to look back, of course, drawing on all of your experience in your long career and also to look forward. Looking back about 10 years, I was first aware of your influence in the world of food security when you and others joined then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to launch the Sun Movement. We're going to return to this, but I'd like to go back much farther than this. Recently, revisiting some history about Ireland and was reminded that after World War II, about 80 years ago, a minority of households in Ireland had indoor plumbing or electricity. And of course, Ireland has developed considerably since then. And going back even before then, about 80 years before that, Ireland experienced its own famine in the 1860s. So looking back, I'm wondering, is there something about Ireland's own experiences with development and famine that has informed or inspired your own career? I think so. The, the famine, which was called the Great Famine, it happened from actually 1845 to 47 left a major mark on Ireland and on its present, obviously, because uh, about a million people died, a million people emigrated, and many of them emigrated to the United States. And it left a mark on its then economy, but it's also left a mark on its future history, because people always just realized the scale of that disaster. So when it comes, if you like, to the modern day, uh, Ireland has had foreign aid program for the last 50 or 60 years, and tackling hunger in its foreign aid program has always been central to the program. So yes, and certainly as far as I'm personally concerned, I mean, I grew up in, I suppose, in the 1950s, a time of, you know, real poverty in Ireland. There was still a high level of emigration from Ireland at that stage. Mm -hmm. But the tide turned, it began turning really in the 60s. And then a really decisive moment happened in 1973 when Ireland joined the then European Economic Community. So Ireland has been part of what's now called the EU since then. And I think that has had a major positive influence on Ireland's development. And now, I mean, it is a very, very modern economy. It's a very modern food economy. It's a major food exporter. Happily, it continues to be very engaged in the whole area of food internationally, not just selling to markets, but wanting to make sure that other countries are following a, process whereby their own food systems are sustainable. Mm -hmm. And that's really part of why I was appointed by the government to be Ireland's 
special envoy on food system. Turning back to Ireland's history, can you tell me a little bit about Ireland's experience of poverty? What do you remember from when you were growing up? Well, I mean, I grew up on a farm in, in North County Dublin. And one of my earliest memories would be my father plowing with horses on, on the farm. We grew on the farm. We gradually moved into horticulture and potatoes and so on. Back in the 50s, the level of, if you like, productivity on Irish farms was very low. I think there was low levels of fertilizer, for example. There was one expert, a New Zealand expert, that was brought in in the late 1940s to comment on the state of Irish agriculture. And he said his, one of his conclusions was it was growing as little as it could possibly grow under the Irish sky, which was frequently filled with rain. So that meant that there was a huge amount to do mm -hmm. and a very important contribution to beginning to move towards a modern agricultural system was Ireland was a beneficiary of the Marshall Plan mm. in the post-war period. And one of the things the Marshall Plan stimulated was they put in place what's called the Agricultural Research Institute. And that plus the Kellogg Foundation funding a whole generation of uh, young Irish agricultural scientists coming to the United States, get their PhDs and then come back to Ireland. So U.S. has been a crucial partner for Ireland in its long history, but particularly in that post-war history. There was a few turning points along the way. I think, first of all, joining the EU meant that the market for Irish agricultural produce became more global, if you like it. It provided access to European markets, which were up to then effectively closed. The technology was improved. We generally got our act together, basically, mm. and, and developed some important food companies, which are now global food companies, mm -hmm. like the Kerry Group. Lambia and this brand. I mean, you're all familiar here in the United States with Kerrygold butter and, and so on. And there's all beef and sheep coming in. I think it's been a huge story, but we've been working on very much, you know, planning for the future. So mm -hmm. since year 2000, there's been a series of strategies developed with the stakeholders in the sector. And that's been one of my more recent roles. I chaired what is the current agricultural agri-food strategy. It's called Food Vision 2030. And that was published last year. And it sets out, if you like, the policy direction of Irish agriculture up to 2030. And at the heart of that is working towards producing our food in the most sustainable way possible. I want to touch on something that I heard, again, back to the Irish experience with agricultural development and food security in different forms. I heard your minister, Minister McConnellog, the Minister of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, say something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing this, but everyone is morally obliged to do everything possible to alleviate world hunger. It also struck me that I, I might not hear that from ministers of agriculture from every country. So do you think that there is a particularly Irish sentiment in what he said? I think so. And, but I mean, it's important to say that, you know, a lot of what Ireland produces is sold on commercial markets abroad. I mean, it's alleviating world hunger to that extent. But where I think what, what is perhaps unique about Ireland is that in our current strategy, we've said, look, we want to develop sustainable food systems at home in our domestic market, but we also want to apply that same approach in our foreign policy. And so we would like to try as far as we can promote this concept of sustainable food systems globally. 
And one of the mechanisms to do that is to try and have a really effective international follow-up to the commitments that were made in the Food Systems Summit last year, and also at the Nutrition for Growth Summit, which was really focusing in on the people who have the biggest problem, the people who are most severely challenged by undernutrition. And the United States came with substantial commitments at both of those meetings, as did Ireland. And so one of the things I've been talking here this week is how Ireland and the U.S. could more effectively work together in delivering on these commitments. Remind me, when did you start the process of developing Ireland's own food systems plan, Ireland's Food Vision 2030? Our first effective meeting was in January 2020. We had been appointed in November. So Mm -hmm. we started our work. We thought we'd get it finished in six to nine months. COVID came along. That interrupted it, obviously. There was also a big question mark as to what the outcome of the Brexit negotiations were going to be. So we published a draft in April of 2021, which went to public consultation, along with a document which assessed the environmental consequences of what we were recommending. And then we finalized the report and it was launched in August of last year. August of last year. Yeah. Immediately prior to the UN Food System Summit. Immediately, yeah, exactly. And what was in that document informed the Irish contribution to the Food System Summit. I think that taking a food systems approach is something that is very much at least invoked to talk about this, but what it looks like in practice is something different. And I don't think that there is necessarily a common understanding of what a food systems approach looks like. You and I were chatting earlier about the environmental impact of Ireland's dairy sector, which is one of the largest portions of Ireland's agriculture sector. How do you balance environmental concerns with nutrition concerns, with economic growth, et cetera? How do you take a food systems approach to that particular sector, for example? Generally, in response to your question about a food systems approach, what it does mean is that there's a recognition at the beginning that there's a link between food policy, environmental policy, and health policy. So if you start with that, then say, for example, if the dairying sector is giving rise to negative environmental consequences in terms of water quality or or loss of biodiversity, that has to be faced up to honestly and dealt with. So that's what we've tried to do in our food vision. Also, the explicit acknowledgement, the link between food, nutrition and health, because this is a global problem. 10 or 15 years ago, when we all spoke about malnutrition, what we really were talking about was undernutrition. Now there is a recognition that malnutrition, in its proper sense, consists of both undernutrition, it consists of micronutrient deficiencies, and it consists increasingly of overweight and obesity. And that latter dimension of malnutrition is becoming a great challenge in all countries in the world. And it is, I have to say, a particular challenge here in the United States. And I spoke about that yesterday at my presentation to say that you here in the States, you've major challenges facing you, but you've also maybe an opportunity to, if you tackle this problem, to give leadership to what is a global problem and a leadership that would be indeed very influential around the world. Interesting. As you said, the United States was very influential in Ireland's own agricultural development last century. I spent time in Ireland in the 1990s and then again in 2010, and it was apparent to me that its economy had grown significantly in that period. As we've discussed, Ireland was at a relatively low level of development after World War II. Um, So what did you see growing up in Ireland at that time? As a child, as a very young child, I grew up with lamplights, with oil. I was about three or four when we got electricity for the first time. And that was part of a rural electrification scheme, which started in 1947 and covered the country in a relatively short time. 
it did mean that the incidence of the number of ghosts that were seen were diminished very rapidly afterwards. <laughs> Electricity was the death knell of a lot of them. <laughs> and, and what would you say about how that affected farming? Well, you were then getting access to things like milking machines, for example, mm. in the dairying sector. I remember on our farm, we moved to selling the horse and getting a tractor. And all that that, that yeah. started off in terms of new forms of mechanization, the sort of machines that you could then mm -hmm. use. So, yeah, it was a turning point. The 1950s was a turning point. Yeah. There must be so many analogies between your own experience with agriculture in Ireland, both growing up on a farm and as Ireland's chief economist of Ireland's Ministry of Agriculture, what you've seen in developing countries as they're developing their own agriculture sectors. Yeah. And each country has to find its own pathway and its own journey. This is why if you are looking to develop a food strategy for a country, you can't import a blueprint from somewhere else. It has to be based on your own realities and indeed, I think, largely based on your own history. So this is a, a key insight. And if Ireland is saying we want to promote sustainable food systems and we have our own experience of doing this, but we wouldn't bring our model and say, this is for you. We may say there are certain principles that we've used in developing our model mm. and how do they apply in your circumstances. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's an excellent point, which you made at the event featuring your minister. Mm. So when it comes to this food systems approach, I take it that there might be a certain type of pollution or certain level of pollution that's generated by Ireland's dairy sector, not unique to Ireland. I think that this probably happens around the world, but is there a role for the government, for example, in helping reduce pollution from this sector so that you can balance environment and economic growth and health outcomes? I mean, there's a whole lot of very practical things that needs to be done, a lot of it by better technology. I mean, one of the consequences of livestock farming is that it produces methane. And at the COP26 last year, there was a global commitment, and the U.S. was very much a leader in this, to reduce the levels of methane. And that can be done by feeding techniques, etc. So we in Ireland uh, were really looking to see very practical research measures and working with the farming community, because you can't achieve any of these things by just telling people to do it. I mean, they have to be, in some cases, helped, in some cases, incentivized, and in some cases, if they are producing pollution, penalized. So there's a range of policy measures that have to be considered. But I mean, the basic thing is that, that given that the agri-food sector is a big contributor to the environmental footprint everywhere, we have to start steadily working mm -hmm. to reduce that environmental footprint. Yeah. You know, perhaps other countries can look to Ireland for your leadership here because industry is not a major source of Ireland's GDP. Agriculture contributes much more to Ireland's GDP than does in other countries. And so your path to get to your Paris Agreement commitments is largely through your agriculture sector. So I think that you might be a bit ahead of the game in terms of thinking of ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from your agriculture sector. Well, I think so. But the other thing is that political climate has changed. And there is now some very ambitious political targets signed up to and legislated for in Ireland. So each sector, whether it be housing, transport, or also, and including agriculture, are going to have their own targets to meet these Paris Agreement commitments. Or basically working on that and certainly the partnership model of both developing an agri-food strategy and then implementing it in collaboration with the people who agreed to the strategy. That's a central part of how we're doing things in Ireland. Okay. And it has been translated into legislation, you mentioned? Well, there's some very ambitious environmental targets in our national legislation. 
But specifically in agriculture, we've got ambitious targets in Food Vision 2030, and there's an implementation plan which is chaired by the Minister for Agriculture to make sure those targets are delivered. We will be interested to follow your own government's role in implementing this, particularly with helping those involved in agriculture to afford the technologies that they might need to reduce pollution, for example. Quote that we heard at the event featuring your minister was that it's hard for farmers to go green when they're in the red. (laughs) That's one that the farm organizations use a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll be watching development across the Atlantic when it comes to this. I want to talk about the events of 2021, the major events when it comes to global food security, being the first ever UN Food Systems Summit, COP26, Nutrition for Growth. I want to talk about those, but from the angle of what's happening today with Russia's war in Ukraine, which is affecting not only agriculture in Ukraine and livelihoods in Ukraine, but food security around the world for a variety of reasons in a way that we have not experienced in any history that I can recall. Did a war between agriculture production powerhouses have effects on food security around the world as we're seeing with this war today? I've heard this a couple of times, but what would a food systems response to this crisis, what would that look like? It wasn't the same, but there was a shock to the world food system in 2007, 2008, when for a variety of supply and demand factors coming together, there was a major increase in food prices, which in fact led to food riots in over 30 countries. And that elicited a response at the time in that politicians began to take food seriously again, having, I would say, taken it for granted for 30 or 40 years. So there were some lessons to be learned from that time. And one of the lessons is protect the people who are most affected. So at the moment, the whole range of things from COVID in the last couple of years to now this shock around the impact of the Ukraine crisis, that has put about an additional 200 million people in severe food insecurity. That should be a first target group to be looked after or to be dealt with. Secondly, you've got to see how we can begin to plan within a period when the prices of inputs have increased substantially. And obviously in Ukraine, there's the physical problem of getting crops planted. Begin to see how we can deal with the short, medium and indeed longer term. In the short term, I think the approach that the World Bank is is taking to say to look at the next three months and see what can be done there, that's right. And then followed by a slightly longer period over the next 15 months, how people can work together to alleviate some of the current problems. Some of that is going to be helping farmers to produce as, as best they can in these circumstances. There's a slightly longer term dimension to this, though, and I think it is important in that I think what this crisis is bringing home to increasingly to countries and indeed to regions is that they have to take the whole area of their food and nutrition security more seriously. It has to be given a higher political priority. So that I would see is where we have to look to. There's a lot of thinking going on here in the United States about that and elsewhere. So we have to get through the short term. I mean, obviously, the hope is that this terrible war, which is having such terrible human consequences, can be brought to a conclusion as soon as possible. No signs of that just yet. But all wars do end eventually, and then you're going to have to talk about what the response is going to be into the future. I already see some discussion in that future, the sort of lessons that were learned from the Marshall Plan in the post-war period back in the 1940s, where the U.S. played such a crucially important role at that time. I'm a great fan of President Harry Truman and what he did at that time, because in a sense, 
the US led the creation of the modern world. And I mean, I think global politics has changed a bit mm -hmm. since then. So you're not in that unique unipolar role of leadership anymore. But the United States is still going to have a major role to play in implementing the future. And looking even farther into the future, your Minister of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Charlie McConnellog, mentioned that as part of Ireland's recent census, there were a number of questions, of course, and then an option at the end of the census to leave a message for citizens of Ireland to read 100 years from now. And I'm wondering, Tom, did you write a message for prior citizens? Would you mind sharing what that message was? And then could you also give a food, nutrition, agriculture related message for the future? Well, I think this, first of all, this is a, a very novel idea to include in a census an optional box at the end for everybody who filled in the census form to say, well, message, would you like to talk about the people who will follow you in your family or grandchildren, great-grandchildren, what they would see you thinking in 2021. My wife wrote something which was really talking about people who would follow us, the, the children, etc., would be interested in what we were thinking in mm -hmm. 2021. I wrote something a bit more political. I talked about where the island of Ireland would be in a century on, because this year is the centenary of the establishment of, effectively, of the Irish Free State, the mm. Irish Republic, and we have still have some unresolved political issues, to put it that way. Uh, so, so anyway, she was more on the personal, I was more on the political, and that probably <laughs> re reflects our respective personalities. <laughs> but I just think the notion that the sense of history that you you spoke about at the beginning, Caitlin, that it is in Ireland. In a way, that question at the end of the census is going to lead to a, a further sense of history 100 years on. So I think it was a great idea. And as far as I could see, nearly everybody filled it in. What message would you give in terms of Ireland's experience of food, agriculture, food security, nutrition, what for, for, for those working on this in 100 years? Well, I, I mean, I do think we're at a crucial moment at present. I, mean, I think if you go back to 40 or 50 years, there was indeed a, an acute awareness of the challenge of global hunger. And the response to that was effectively what was called the Green Revolution, again led by a great American, Norman Borlaug. And that was really about bringing new technology to food production. But it was a technology based on heavy chemical fertilizers, all sorts of other intensifications. Where we're now at in the world is that we have to indeed continue to look to an increase in food production, but it has to be now done in a way that is not damaging the environment. And a few years ago, great British scientist Gordon Conway wrote a book called The Doubly Green Revolution. So uh, what he meant by that was that we do need a new green revolution, but it has to be a different type of green revolution than the first one. A green, green revolution. Yeah. Returning to your leadership in Ireland's Food Vision 2030, what would be a Food Vision 2130? Well, I'm very happy that the vision we spelled out for this coming decade, which is based on sustainability, and sustainability understood that it has to be economically, environmentally, and socially sustainability. I'm very happy that that is the right vision for the coming decade, but I think it's probably the right vision for much longer than that. And if we can begin to bring the benefits of technology to this new green, green revolution, and I think there's huge opportunities for that in, in terms of different ways in which we work with our animal partners, because I do think that uh, livestock production is going to continue, from an Irish point of view in particular, to be at the heart of our 
agri-food economy. I do think that to reassert that animal protein is important in the global diet, while also accepting that there are parts of the rich world that should be reducing the amount of animal products that it, it consumes. But at the same time, the vast majority of the rest of the world needs animal protein to improve their own nutritional status. I would see Ireland as continuing to be a major contributor to the global food economy with producing products that are increasingly in demand. And I think the grass-based systems that we have to produce our animal food in particular will continue to be completely relevant to that future. I do want to return before we wrap up to your leadership in the Sun Movement. Again, it was in 2011 that I joined the State Department's Office of Global Food Security, not long after you joined the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in launching the Sun Movement. The 1,000-day window between pregnancy and a child's second birthday, that's always been critical to physical and cognitive development. What was it about that year, though? What was it about 2010? Why did you launch the Sun Movement then? I think it was the culmination of a whole series of really important things that had happened in the previous few years. One indeed was a recognition, and World Bank had a crucial role in this, a recognition of the importance of this concept of 1,000 days. It wasn't really recognized as clearly up till then, but it was recognized then. And then there was another very influential report by the Lancet publication in 2008, which set down the costs of malnutrition in terms of child mortality and in terms of stunting. So all of these, if you like, scientific insights had come on the table. The food price crisis of 2007 and 2008 had heightened the the political background. And that was what led to that day in September 2010, when Secretary Clinton and the then Irish Foreign Minister Micheál Martin launched the Sun, the Thousand Days and the Sun Movement. I was very privileged to be a representative of Irish civil society there, and I was delighted that my very good friend David Beckman from Bread for the World represented American civil society at the time. So I think the Sun Movement is of profound importance in terms of requiring or encouraging countries to really focus, particularly on early childhood nutrition and on the Thousand Days but increasingly also on other dimensions of of nutrition. And I had the privilege then of leading the Sun Movement for two years from 2014 to 2016. So that moment when political priority, science came together to move the agenda, the nutrition agenda on, we started then, we had been talking at that stage up about, oh, we always talked about food security. After that time, we started talking about food and nutrition security. I mean, the other player, a person who really deserves huge credit at that time was Dr. David Navarro, the leadership he gave, the leadership he continues to give in mm-hmm. the world. But now I think we're at another of these crucial moments, 2022. And we have to recognize that the Ukraine crisis, I think, has changed things, should change perceptions, that countries have to look to their own food and nutrition security much more in the future. We're not talking about going back to policies of self-sufficiency. That's not anywhere on the agenda, I think. But I think what is on the agenda is that countries and regions need to become less vulnerable to some of the challenges that are out there. Mm -hmm. Well, we have you to thank for your leadership helping to keep these issues on the agenda always. These things can go in and out of popularity in different countries at different times. But thanks to 
leaders like you, you give these issues the attention that they need. So thank you. And I want to say, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about before we conclude? No, well, I mean, I, I do think this notion of leadership, consistent leadership, consistent policy is hugely important. I also do want to say that the role of the United States, I've given some sense of its importance in terms of Irish historical development, but I still hope that it is going to continue to lead on certain critical areas. And I was speaking in the last couple of days about the potential importance of the upcoming White House meeting on food, nutrition, hunger, and health. And I referenced back the White House meeting in, back in 1969, which gave rise to a whole series of really important changes at the time. Now you're faced with another different type of challenge in terms of the type of malnutrition we have now. The U.S. still has the potential to do great things. And I hope it's going to rise to that challenge. Perhaps we can invite you back to talk about the outcomes of the White House Conference coming up later this year. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time to join us. Catherine, that was great. Thank you. Well done. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.